0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the News Agent podcast. I'm Susie Lysett, Senior Content Executive at Goodlord, and this episode's a recording of our Legislation Update webinar with Robert Bolwell, Senior Partner from Dutton Gregory. He joined Goodlord's COO, Tom Mundy, to talk through all the latest that you need to know about the right to rent, carbon monoxide and smoke alarm regulations, and the Renters' Reform Bill white paper. And he also answered some audience questions as well. Uh, the webinar itself is CPD accredited, so I'll include the link in the show notes if you prefer to watch it. build up your credits Uh, but without any further ado on with the podcast. Good morning everyone. Welcome to the legislation update. Um, we have Robert Bolwell joining us from Dutton Gregory today and this is maybe the second or, or, or third that uh, Robert and I have done together um, and um, today we're going to be going through a few topics, um, some 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 current affairs um, with legislation changes coming down the tracks um, and um, then we'll also have a live Q&A as well. So um, Robert are you there?
1: Okay. um Morning, Tom. Um, hope you can see me. Hope everyone can hear me. My only question at the start, Tom, is where were you 15 years ago when I bought my first that property? I could have used you guys and I'm really good. But anyway, um, good morning, everybody. Um, as Tom alluded, this is a second or third of these we've done. And I think it's probably about six weeks since we did the last one, Tom. And I can't get over how much has changed how much is coming online that we need to update everyone so what i want to do is go quite quickly and deal with just before two or three topics today but um as you may have alluded to earlier yeah if you've got queries guys just send them through to tom and he'll repeat the questions we'll try and get to as many questions as we can either during or at the end of the the brief seminar so tom what's on the first slide so um, we are going to be going through um, the right
0: to rent changes in IDVT. So if if um, anyone doesn't know what IDVT means, we're going to kind of explain that for you, um, and also the changes that are coming in through right to rent. Um, we're then going to go into the white paper. So um, I think everyone um, should know about the white paper because it's going to be some pretty big changes um, for 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 England um, and renting in in, in England. So um, that should be quite juicy. Um, then we're going to go into carbon monoxide and smoke alarm. Regulations. Um, there's a lot of technicalities in there, and um, kind of, I'm sure the Q and A will be blowing up with that one. Um, and then finally, any questions that you have um, that if we've had time to to go through, um, we'll we'll go through that. So, so yeah. So I think let's get started on the first right to rent um, changes. So, Robert, okay, do you want to well, go through that?
1: Yeah, what i was going to do, Tom, is I'm going to do, do a bit of history because I love history. Now, most of you will recall that the right to rent change. Sorry, the 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 the, the right to rent legislation as it was first came in with the immigration act of 2014 and back in those days we had um, a test area in the west midlands west bromwich in particular um that was the test area for six months and after a six-month successful um, test it was rolled out across the entire country and ever since 2014 we've had tweaks and changes and evolution the first change came within days of the scheme being rolled out across the country and it came from some fairly unusual quarters um, within days, literally, of the rollout, we were getting queries from letting agents in and around towns um, that bordered American airbases because American servicemen were getting off their transport planes, coming into this country, in particular, Lakenhall Lake Hall in Suffolk. And they were being told by their local agents, sorry, you may have signed up a tenancy agreement six weeks ago, but we can't give you the keys because you can't pass the right to rent checks. So um, rumour has the Pentagon saw red. There were some um, very urgent telephone calls to Whitehall. And the first of the evolutionary change to the right to rent checks came in literally in days of the rollout back in way back in 2014, 2015. And ever since then, um, agents, and well, we've all struggled to try and keep up with what the changes are on a, on a month-to-month basis. Now, the next big alteration for us really came with lockdown at the end of March 2020. Now, you'll all recall that lockdown was suddenly when we found ourselves working from home we could no longer do the face to face stuff and we suddenly discovered that zoom was not a kid's ice lolly it was a software package that enables to work from home so the first big change the government introduced in 2020 was say okay if we can't do that, the face-to-face stuff, um, what we'll do is we'll do online checks. And the first of those online checks was basically seeing your potential tenant at the end of a camera somewhere, maybe overseas, maybe in the next town. He'd hold up his paperwork. You look at the paperwork. And if that matched what had been sent to you previously by your prospective tenant, then yes, that was your check done, Tick the box, move on. And that was absolutely fine. Now, those FaceTime checks, as they were called, all come to an end on the 30th of September 2022. So we've got basically six weeks or so before those FaceTime checks could no longer um, operate. What will have to happen after that is you either do some sort of online check or you go back to face-to-face checks that we had before the pandemic, before we were all working from home. So that's the first big change. After that, of course, you will recall that more and more stuff was being doing online by the Home Office. So if you were applying for a visa to come to this country and you were in Timbuktu or whatever, yes, you might get your visa, but it's probably going to be an e-visa. So if you are flying into Heathrow or whatever before you go on the plane, you'd probably want to have a chat with your letting agent, find out where you could rent I'm in your final destination. You would give your letting agent what's called a share code. Your letting agent would type that share code into the Home Office website, Type in the prospective tenant's date of birth and hey presto, that was an online check. You would see in real time all the documentation which your potential tenant coming from Timbuktu or whatever had given to the home office. You'd see in real time that the visa had been granted and hey presto, tick the box and move on. Now, that was a great system if you were coming from overseas and you're applying for a visa. An online check, it took literally a few minutes to do. The oddity about that situation is you couldn't do the same online checks for a british citizen in the town next door um with him or her you either have to go through the face-to-face face uh, stuff or until the end of september you do the FaceTime. well what we're talking about now is idvt which stands for identity document validation technology identity document validation takes off the tongue that one doesn't it Yeah, it trips off the tongue. It really does. Now, what it means in practice is if you are a citizen of Britain or Ireland, Clues Island, Irish Republic, you can upload your identity documents to a chosen supplier, chosen nominee agency, as it were, that's got a contract with the government you can then check with that agency, again, an online check, and within minutes, you'll know that whether or not the documentation of the person you want to give a tenancy to is valid. Now, it sounds incredibly simple. We've had the system in place in theory since April of this year. But, of course, when we can no longer do FaceTime checks with British and Irish citizens come the 30th of September, it's going to take on a new importance. Now, if we go back to... May or June, there was something like two nominated providers, two organisations that had got government contracts to do this IDVT stuff. As of yesterday, that was up to nine. And if anybody wants to actually Google the identity document validation technology guidelines, you can get a list from the government of all those organisations which are authorised to do it. And what you would do as an agent is you have a contract with that organisation. Some are quoting as little as £1 per ID check. And what you will do is you'll do the online check with that particular provider. They've already got the documentation verified on their government contract. And hey, presto, you'll then get clearance under the right to rent checks. So, again, it's a way of getting away from the FaceTime checks, which we know are going to end come September. It's not quite the home office check that we still have to do with um, people coming from abroad who have got visas or other permissions to be here, but it's a good way of making sure that, yes, there is an alternative to FaceTime checks, and it will be relatively cheap. Now, depending on where you get your referencing done, your reference providers will probably already have links with an IDVT um, checking organisation, so you'll feed in through that. I mean, I was going to say... I mean, what's a good lord position on this
0: one? Yeah, so so we have we've been obviously very close to this. Um, we do um, we do. ID check. So we, we scan the ID and we check it for fraud. Um, we will be, we will be working with a IDBT approved, um, ID validation, um, company. So rather than getting the accreditation ourselves, we will, we will work with a company that has the accreditation. Um, and, and, and then that will make sure that any check that is go, that goes through that process, um, will be IDBT kind of certified. Now, um, that is probably going to be coming in, um, Q, Q4, Q1 next year for us. Um, Um, we, and so that's kind of where it is on our roadmap. Um, but it's definitely something that we're, we're we're quite, um, we're we're quite kind of, um, interested in and, and, and we know is going to be quite pivotal to referencing moving forwards. Um, I do have a a question. Why, why do you think they're giving out contracts and and not doing this themselves? Uh, why why isn't the government kind of doing their
1: own um system i think think it's probably the cost um because you've got to bear in mind that for the system to work your potential tenant whether it's a brit or an irish national they have got to upload their documentation to a nominated website Now, you can't force people to do that. So there may be, you know, for some considerable period of time, a whole raft of people coming into your office that they simply haven't calmed onto this system. Um, It will be slow on the uptake. So, you know, for at least the foreseeable future, you'll still be doing, I suspect, face-to-face checks. You know, you'll get the real passport on an agent's desk. So I think this is coming. It's not going to be the be-all and end-all for the 30th of September when the FaceTime checks. Checks come to an end. But it's it's good to know that it's there and it will be something that more and more tenants will take up on. Because although we're talking about right to rent checks here, this IDVT technology stuff is being used more and more in different government departments. So, for example, if you're an employer, and you want to check the ID of an employee, you use the same technology, you use the same providers. Um, if you are filling in or want to get some identification documentation certified for your tax return, again, use an IDVT. Um, accreditation organisation so we're talking about right to rent here but over the coming well, the coming years to be honest Tom, we're going to see more and more of this as an alternative to carrying around a passport, carrying around a driving licence or whatever you'll simply log into your account with your particular IDVT provider and it'll be there for anybody to check to make sure that you know Tom Mundy really is Tom Mundy. So it's going to be a bit of a slow rollout, I don't think it's going to be a game changer on the 1st of October but we need to sort of monitor what's happening and agents need to know that this is going to be an alternative for those Brits and those Irish nationals who have actually registered with a particular organisation. Okay,
0: great. We were getting a few questions through. So um, does IDVT work um, for only for British um, or will overseas pass work?
1: passports and, and um a no, french italian it, work as well it's the british and irish nationals um you know when it comes to overseas nationals coming here you have got that share code because now you're not going to get necessarily a paper visa if you're coming from overseas it will be an e-visa electronically held by the home office and everybody including those people who applied for you know sort of residency here under the brexit scheme now those have come from former eu countries um they will have a share code so if somebody comes into your office and says look i am a national of i will say Timbuktu, wherever it may be, um, and I want a tenancy, you know that if they have got a valid visa, they will also have a share code. Mm-hmm. So although you can't force people to go down that share coding route, my first preference is always to say, well, let's have your share code, let's have your date of birth, let's see your original passport. You type the details into the home office search and literally within seconds, you will know whether the person in front of you in the office really has got permission to be here. So if you like, the IDVT sits alongside the system we've got for foreign nationals um the only curiosity of course is because our historic links with with southern ireland the idvt stuff will actually cover brits and irish nationals but no it's not an alternative to checking the share code or checking the paperwork from an overseas national that's here on a visa or some other uh, work permit arrangement okay and so and and because if we're going to be
0: using kind of if, if people are going to be using kind of an online system to do this, um, they, they don't necessarily need to see the person in um, kind of face to face. How how is that going to how are we going to kind of verify that the person that's going through IDBT is actually, you know, the person
1: they say they are? I, I, know. I mean, that's the problem. It's not a question of identity theft. It's a question of what I call impersonation. You've still got to be relatively convinced that the person you are searching against, whether it's IDVT or whatever system you're using, is actually the person you're dealing with, perhaps in the office, perhaps sign the tenancy agreement. So uh, call me an Oathanderthal, but I think for some considerable period of time, if it was me... I would still want to see that person's lifetime. I'd still want to see his passport. Um, But obviously, you're going to make sure that whatever comes back on your IDVT searches, the picture looks vaguely like the guy who's actually signed the tenancy you're giving the keys to tomorrow morning. But yes, identity theft and impersonation is going to be a problem. This does not answer that. All this does is make sure that the person whose name is on the tenancy application is the bona fide individual who's got some sort of identification the authorities are happy with. So impersonation, identity theft is always going to be a problem, I'm afraid. And just a little bit more on
0: that, Duncan. I, I think we, there, there are a few assets of kind of facets to an IDVT check. And, and one of those could be a, uh, a biometric face scan. So I don't know if you've ever signed up to anything on online and it makes you look left, look right, right, look up and down. So that's the perp, that, the, that, that gives the purpose of kind of a liveness check is that person actually a person and not just a,
1: a picture Absolutely. of a picture i think i think what we've got here is idvt stage one now i mean if you it's like me you've got an natwest account i have At West app on my phone and i cannot make a transfer without sort of getting my face in that circle blinking my eyes several times and say, yeah it's definitely you robert so you know this is all going to be coming in the future um it's not going to be here necessarily tomorrow morning but it's obviously the way it's, it's going to go and ultimately everything will be done on your telephone or on your on your tablet or whatever and you know days as they carrying around your passport and your driving license will be a thing of the past but no you're right ultimately there will be pictures There will be blinking there'll be lifetime transmission so you know this is very much stage stage one we're getting a few questions about kind of
0: do i need to do an idv check idvt check on top of uh, a face-to-face check
1: no no this is not compulsory this is an option Now, you know, one situation where I might consider doing it is if you've got a tenant who sent all his IDV documentation into a provider, but then he's lost it. You know, he's lost his passport or whatever. That would be a perfect time to do it. But this is an option for agents. It's not compulsory. Now, the obvious question, Tom, is, you know, five years down the line, you and I will be retired. Is it going to be compulsory then? I don't know. But. Probably it will be. So I would say start using the system now so you get to know how it works. Get ahead of the game. If nothing else, saying to a landlord that we're using this new IDVT technology to make sure your tenant is a bona fide tenant. It's probably quite good when it comes to USP selling your services as opposed to someone in the high street who's never heard of this stuff. So, you know, it it could be just a part of a marketing thing at the moment more than anything else. OK, great. We've got one one more question, um, which is right to rent
0: focused. I think we've talked about IDVT a lot. Um, but um, Charlotte's got a question around um, Europeans that don't have share codes um, because they're waiting on their visa or something like that. Um, they're allowed to stay here for six months. Um, how, how, how would one kind of right to rent check them?
1: Well, in theory, um, if they have applied for permanent status in this country, they should have a share code. If they don't, they need to have something from the home office to say, yes, we've got your application. Now, of course, once you've got evidence from the home office that an application has been made, as long as you're happy the letter is genuine, if they've got a six-month right to be here automatically, you can give them a 12-month AST. That's not a problem. But don't forget, the home office does operate a landlord checking system. So for difficult questions where we just can't see an obvious answer – you can file your request with the Home Office online, and they guarantee to come back to you within two working days, which is probably a bit better than Dutton and Gregory guarantee. But that's what they guarantee: two working days, they'll come back. But if you've got evidence that they have applied for um, permanent status, well, number one, they should have a share code. To be honest, everyone has applied to have a share code. But if the worst comes to, you've got a bit of paper, I'm happy with that. Or check it online. That's the safest way of doing it.
0: Okay, fantastic. Well, we've got a lot more questions on that, um, so we, we, we may come back to that topic um, in in the Q and A section at the end. But um, let's 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 move on to our sep- second to- topic today, um, the white paper.
1: Right. Um, okay. I, I don't know anybody remembers the last time we did one of these. You and I, Tom, it was on the morning the white paper was supposed to be published, but it wasn't published until lunchtime. So we were we were a bit lost. Um, on exactly what the white paper was going to contain. But I've put up there six bullet points, six items that we really need to focus on over the course of the next couple of years because this is not coming in tomorrow. A white paper, in case people don't realise it, is government aspirations. It's blue sky thinking. How much of the white paper gets translated into an actual bill is debatable. How much of that bill actually ends up on the statute books is, again, debatable. But let's let's look at some, some, some of the issues that uh, Michael Gove actually highlighted. And the first one there is decent home standards. Now, like a lot of these other points, it's nothing that I would get terribly excited about. The decent home standards decrees that every rental property should be Modern, decent, it should be of a genuinely good standard for the people in there. Now, we already have a decent home standard, but it only applies to the social sector, public housing, housing associations, local authorities. It's never, ever been brought in and applied to the private rented sector. So what Michael Gove is suggesting is the standard we have out there for the public sector should now apply to the private sector. But if you go through the decent home standard, there's not a lot there which is... I would say the troubling professional agents. I mean, number one, it says you have to comply with the health and safety rating system. Well, we have to do that anyway. We've had that since the best part of 2004. We have to do that anyway. It says that a property should be in a reasonable state of repair. Well, some of the agents will know that we have something called Section 11 of the Landlord and Tenant Act, which says that a landlord's got to be responsible for things like space heating, the structure, the roof, the guttering. So we've got that already. Um, the only areas where the decent home standard is likely to have some effect is where you have a particularly old kitchen or a bathroom and it doesn't appear to be modern. Now, there's a hole it's not going to go into. But if we have a scenario where you've got a very old kitchen, a very old bathroom, um, it's not really conducive with modern living. Then depending on how bad things are in the property generally. Yeah. A local authority could step in and say, right replace that kitchen, replace that bathroom. But again, it's 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 not really something I'm going to get too worried about at the moment, because things have got to be pretty bad. And odds are, if your kitchen or your bathroom is pretty shoddy anyway, you may be in breach of that section 11 point I mentioned a moment ago. So it's not really imposing a too much of a burden on landlords going forward but it does for the first time equate standards in the public housing sector with stuff in the private rented sector one interesting point that um, is probably in the public sector but not our sector, yet is noise insulation. Um, If, for example, you have a property which is in a particularly noisy location, perhaps next to a main road or perhaps next to to a busy airport, the decent home standards decrees that there should be a degree of noise insulation to help protect those in the property from noise getting in from outside. Now, that might be one area You know, where some landlords have a bit of a worry if they have got properties next to main roads. And of course, it may be something that landlords want to take into consideration if they think of extending their portfolio. Don't buy somewhere, you know, next to a busy road or an airport, maybe, if there is going to be a a likely due course of local authorities saying, right, we need noise insulation. But, you know, that is one of the key facets of, of the white paper. The one, of course, that got all the headlines, you know, the Daily Mail and all the rest of it, was we're going to scrap Section 21 notices. Now, section 21 notice has really been the backbone of what i call our industry you know since they're introduced back in 1988 housing act um at the moment the way things stand as long as you serve the right paperwork in the right order you jump through all these hopes you can serve a section 21 notice and you know at the end of two months or whatever you'll be able to get a court order you'll get your property back no matter what your motivation as a landlord that's gonna go um Every political party of every single colour out there has said over the last last five years, they want to scrap this no-fault eviction. So what's going to replace it is a right for landlords to recover possession of a property, A, if the tenant's in default. Well, we have that already. B, if they want to sell the property and it's a genuine, they really want to sell it. Or C, they want a member of their immediate family to move in and live there as their principal home. So those are going to be effectively where we are going to be if this legislation or when this legislation comes in and Section 21 notices go.
0: And So how, how does that how does that change things? Because, you know, a lot of the time, uh, you know, if, if a landlord's got a property and they're renting it. Uh, there, there aren't that many reasons why they would want to get it back because, the, as long as the tenant's paying their rent, um, all should be good. So, how how does the section, how does removal of that really make a big impact?
1: Well, in I mean, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, the best thing to do is go and look at Scotland. Scotland got rid of Section Twenty-One a few years ago, and amazing. Although there is some anecdotal evidence suggests that a few landlords have left the left the market, as it were. There hasn't been a wholesale disaster north of the border because you say most landlords are happy if the rent is paid. If Rent's not coming in. Well, then they've got different ways of getting rid of the tenant. But most landlords simply want a guaranteed income. So they don't need to serve a Section 21 unless they want to sell or say they want their families to move in. The one area which I think a lot of professionals are concerned about um, is where you have a tenant who is causing, should we say, social problems either with the landlord or perhaps with the agent or more likely with his neighbours. Now, although that is technically, in many cases, a breach of a tenancy agreement, to try and persuade a county court to evict someone when you've got these vague complaints from the neighbours is a bit difficult. And it often is very, very expensive. So in a scenario like that, where the landlord says, look, I want this tenant out for all sorts of quite valid reasons, but I don't want a long, drawn out, protected, defended court case in my county court. Yeah, for those landlords, the option we have at the moment is a section 21 notice, and that's a very painless, very quick and relatively cheap process. So in those few cases where we have a genuine reason to get rid of a tenant, but we know the tenant's going to fight and all the evidence may be subjective, that could be one area where we're going to have some some concerns, but apart from that, say it hasn't caused a disaster north of the border, and if they can pull it off in Scotland, I'm sure we can pull it off here. What Michael Gove has said is he will give us a few more grounds for possession. So you look like the fourth bullet point out. Um, at the moment, of course, you get a mandatory ground for possession if you've got two months rent arrears when you serve your default notice, and you've still got two months rent arrears when you're in court. What Michael Gove is suggesting is that if you've been in arrears for two months or more, at least three times over the last few years, that would then be a mandatory ground to get your tenant out, even if they magically pay off all the arrears the day before you walk into court. So he is going to strengthen the grounds of possession. Um, but that is a bit of a bit of a sop. The other problem, if you like know, it's give with one hand takeaway with the other, he is talking about making all default notices um not two weeks but minimum of four weeks but let's see what comes through at the moment a section eight for rent arrears you simply have two weeks rent arrears or sorry two months rent arrears you serve your notice two weeks later you're off to court so that is going to be changed um, exactly how that pans out in the bill remains to be seen. But the headline thing, removing a Section 21 notices, is not really going to be the disaster a lot of commentators think it will be. Wales, um, they've gone the other way. In Wales, they are going to retain Section 21 notices. It's going to be called something different. They're going to retain it, but it's going to be a six-month notice. So you've got that situation in Wales where you can always get rid of your tenant without any Good reason, but it's going to be a six-month notice. So if you like, we've got Scotland showing us what we're likely to be doing here. We're going to lose Section 21s, and the Welsh have got that sort of hybrid where it's going to be still there. Of course, cool, different, but it'll be a six-month notice. And there's no chance
0: that the government might say, actually, no, the Welsh way looks like a good way. Do you think it's going to change at this
1: point? <sighs> at this point, probably not, simply because Labour... Um, the Conservatives and the Lib Dems have all said they want to get rid of the Section 21 on, period. So don't hold out much hope for that. It would be nice. Um, obviously, we've got no idea who the new Prime Minister is going to be. It's down to two people. Things may well change. Um, and whether Michael Gove is coming back to be the Housing Minister under the new government, I really don't know. Of course, he he was sacked by Boris a few weeks ago. So, you know, housing minister number 224 in as many weeks. So he's gone. So what the new guy is going to do, I've got no idea. But, you know, it, it, it's going to change. And I think we have to assume that it's going to be um, end of Section 21s. But the message we have got to get to landlords somehow is, yeah, Scotland survived. Don't panic. Don't get rid of your portfolio. There are alternatives. Um, the few cases where we want to serve a Section 21 for social reasons, you know, it's, it's nothing to really lose any sleep over. So that's going to go. Okay. To my mind, um, Tom, the, the big thing that the papers really haven't picked up on is this idea of fixed term tenancies being no more. Um, I mean, at the moment, if you think about it, most people walk into your office and they will want a tenancy for six months, 12 months or whatever. Now, no matter what tenancy they sign up to. The evidence from across the country is most people are at least 18 months in a property. They don't go at the end of six months or 12 months. They're at least 18 months. The government actually wants to give tenants more flexibility. So at some stage in the future, when you're signing a new agreement, it won't be for 12 months or six months. It'll be what we call a periodic tenancy. It'll be from month to month to month to month to month. And the idea is that if the tenant wants out at any time, he can give you two months' notice and disappear. And that's going to take some some comprehension on the part of landlords because we're all used to a fixed-term tenancy for 12 months. And I think that, you know, managing agents are going to have to look very closely at their charging models as to what we're going to do going forward.
0: Yeah, we, we actually done a little bit of research on this and, um, kind of looked across a lot of the landlord terms of businesses that, um, that our agents have. And it, it's looking around two, two to 300 pounds average kind of renewal fee, um, that, that, that actually might not be on the table. So I think, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a lot more than that or, um, th- like charging a lot more than that, then there might actually be quite a big hole, um, in, in, in your revenue there if you're, if you're not able to charge that renewal fee for the landlord. So, um, that's just something to, to, to consider um but i think i think how how do you think how do you think um landlords will feel about you know commission maybe paying commission up front and some some agencies will will take a whole 12 months up front um from the first month rent is do you think that will still still happen
1: no, i i i just don't think it's going to happen i mean at the moment if you sign a fixed month 12 12- 12-month AST, okay. I can understand why a lot of agents say to a landlord, right, you've got a 12-month AST. We'd like the commission paid up front in in month one. And, you know, anecdotally, a lot of agents in London, large urban areas, they do that. In the Shires, not so much. But in London, they do. And, of course, from a cash flow point of view for an agent, it's great. From a landlord's point of view, it means they probably don't get any rent in month one, maybe not even month two. But at least all the bills are paid. Now, if I'm a landlord and I want a 12-month agreement, but the agent says, well, I'm sorry, we can only do a periodic tenancy under the new rules, which means your tenant may be buggering off in two months' time. As a landlord, am I going to want to pay commission on a 12-month agreement that might only last two, three, or four months? I'm not. So I think for a lot of agents, you know, when we see what the bill is going to suggest, when we know this is going to actually happen, I mean, at the moment, it's it's blue-sky thinking, but if this comes in... I think a lot of charging models are going to have to change because, as you say, it's not just the renewal fees we might be losing. It'll be that upfront commission. Everyone's going to have to go on to a basis whereby you take your commission month in, month out, all the way through the term, whether that term's two months or 22 months. And, you know, it will have a knock-on effect to the finances of many, many agents, especially those in London who've always got used to charging a large amount of commission on month one. And... and uh... A landlord's a landlords, landlords
0: able to give notice to uh, tenants. I think we, we we've talked about um, tenants being able to
1: just say, actually, no, I don't want the the, the, the property anymore. Can the landlord do the same? Absolutely. And after the first six months, if the landlord wants to sell the property or put his family in. He will be serving the equivalent of what, you know, was an old Section 21, but only on those specific grounds. It'll be a ground, sorry, Section 8 notice, new grounds, I want to sell, I want to put my family in. It'll be two months, and, yeah, at the end of that, he'll be able to get his property back or go to court to get the property back. Now, I say, all this at the moment is blue sky thinking. When we see the bill... It may well be that notice periods will be different. The talk at the moment say is you can't do it for the first six months. It may well be the government will say you can't do it for the first 12 months. We just don't know. But, you know, there will be that mechanism there, but not initially. At the moment, you can't serve Section 21 notice under current rules for a period of time from the tenancy starting, um, and those, those will be continued in the future. So, yeah, I mean, watch this space. We're a long way away from a bill. Um, uh, if you want me to be honest, I would say... We may have a bill probably towards the end of this financial, sorry, this uh, calendar year. I know when he was the housing minister, Michael Gove was talking about getting something in front of Parliament by September of next year. Um, whether a success is going to have the same sort of timescale, I, I really don't know. But at the moment, you know, it's business as usual; nothing is changing. Now, if they do get a bill published by September 2023. I think we have to assume at least a year for this to get through the parliamentary process, even if it, you know, if it's not posed by anybody, it will be a year. And then, probably, people have picked up that in this country, most landlord tenant legislation comes into play either at the beginning of April or the beginning of October. So, I my best bet is we're probably not going to get anything before April. 2025 on the actual statute books. It could be later than that, but April 2025 is my best guess at the earliest, earliest possible time that any of this might see the light of day. But, you know, we've got to start educating landlords. It's all very well, you, me and the agents knowing what's coming, but we've got to let landlords know because what landlords can't do is they can't be allowed to get all their information from the mail on Sunday because, you know, the mail on Sunday will just look at one aspect, you know, Section 21 notices, but there are other things in the white paper that we should be aware of. I mean, discrimination is up there on the screen. I mean, Michael Gove was saying it's wrong to discriminate against families on benefit. It's wrong to discriminate against X, Y, and Z. Well, you know, we do already have anti-discrimination legislation in this country. Some people will be aware that, you know, over a year ago, we had this this case up in York, where shelter, and it's always shelter, I'm afraid, shelter um, on behalf of the a tenant or would-be tenant took an agent to court arguing that to discriminate against people on benefit was unlawful and and the court agreed you know and there's even a scale of charges now that shelter expect agents to pay if they dare put an advert in the press or the media saying no benefit payment so you know that's with us already the other thing that uh, Michael Gove did get quite upset about was rent reviews now obviously if we have got no longer a fixed term tenancy if we've got a rolling tenancy from month to month to month rent reviews will become very important because you know there'll be no renewal fees there'll be no chance to renegotiate the terms of an existing tenancy so rent reviews will be important at the moment most people are aware that if you're in a rolling periodic tenancy the only way you can increase the rent is either a new agreement or Uh, You have a rent review clause embodied in your existing documentation, which you can activate, or you serve something called a Section 13 notice, which gives you the ability to increase the rent once a year to what we call a market level. Now, tenants can appeal that if they want to, but not many do. So you've got those three methods of actually increasing the rent. What Michael Gove wants is to get rid of automatic rent increase you know those clauses we say your rent will go up by 5% every year no matter what happens they're going to go he was also talking about giving landlords the ability to increase rent not once a year with a section 13 notice but once every two years so you know there are there are little tweaks coming here which are all really um, predicated on the fact that we won't have a fixed-term tenancy anymore. But those, if you like, are the six things that i pick out um, of concern in the white paper. But, you know, how much of this gets into a bill, how much of this becomes law, how much of this we're going to be dealing with in real time come April 2025, you and I just don't know at the moment. Yeah. And um, I, it, it is worth noting that there is a there is a call for evidence
0: at the moment. Um, I think it actually finishes today. Um, but um, that that is an opportunity for um, industry professionals to to submit their evidence. Um, there are there are there are a lot of questions that you can tell. Um, they, have res- they have the, the government has, has heard the kind of the uproar from the industry um, and, and they are asking for asking for opinions on it. Um, it, it is worth submitting information there. Um it is. It is. And
1: I think I think what people may not realise before a bill is published, there has to be what we call an impact statement. You know, a large chunk of Whitehall is dedicated to looking at the effects of new legislation and an impact statement will be produced with the bill indicating what the effect is going to be on the private rented sector. Now, you know, if our peers decide that if all this goes through, we're going to have a mass exodus of private landlords from the sector, that is going to be a very good reason for drumming down the effects of the bill. Because at the moment we've got so many people in the private rented sector, government and local authorities will not be able to step into the breach to provide alternative accommodation if landlords simply say, Oh, sell up. The other thing, of course, is you know, supply and demand in a in a capitalist society dictates that if we do have landlords exiting the market and the supply of rental accommodation, which is already stretched. If that supply gets even tighter, what's that going to do to prices? What's that going to do to rent? Now, you know, my my perfect storm, if you like, my, my nightmare scenario is we had all this coming through in April of 25. And then we may get a Labour government that suddenly says, oh, you know, uh, Mr Khan down in London was correct. We do want to have rent controls. Now, that would be a complete disaster. But if this goes through and we do see landlords exiting, those landlords who stick the course, they will probably be seeing a significant upcre- increase. In the rent they can charge, um it's not, like, it's, a- it's not like tenants can
0: magically purchase these houses
1: as well. No. You know, there's there's a, no. there's a reason a lot of people rent. So absolutely, I mean, I, I totally get that, and I just hope that message gets through to to government that before they sort of just go ahead with all these ideas, they do look at not just the short term consequences, but the long term consequences of perhaps landlords exiting the market. And you think about it: if people are on benefit and they're paying a market rent a lot of that benefit comes from you and me the taxpayers so there are all sorts of implications but it'll be very interesting to see the impact statement that the government comes up with as they decide to turn this into some sort of draft legislation
0: yeah indeed um, we we have a question here from Tanya, which I I think actually is covered in uh, um in 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 the bill um it, it kind of individually, but um where does discrimination um kind of um start with with pets? A majority of renters are having issues when it comes to wanting a property, but they have a dog or cat. Um, is is that discrimination? If you say no, I don't I don't want a Great
1: Dane in my property. At the moment, it's not discrimination. What the White Paper suggests, and again, it's just a suggestion, that landlords should consider carefully whether a pet um, should be allowed. Uh, At the moment, we have something called the Consumer Rights Act. Now, the Consumer Rights Act says that every clause in every tenancy agreement must be fair and reasonable. So most tenancies, when they come to dealing with pets, say one of two things. Number one, you can't have a pet unless you get the landlord's permission, such permission not to be unreasonably refused. Now that means if someone does say, I'd like to have a dog in my, my, my flat, you've got to have a look at what reasons the landlord wants to give for not allowing that pet. Now, the easy one is if in the title documents, you know, the long lease the landlord owns, there's a clause which says no pets at all in its development. That's an easy one. After that, it gets a bit more tricky. Um, it's difficult to say no to a guide dog because then other discrimination issues come in because you're talking about someone who's got disability, etc., etc., etc. But at the moment, you you can say no pets allowed, no problems at all. And you got a bit of an argument. As far as I'm concerned, going forward, I think we have to anticipate that the government are going to make a few changes. What the White Paper discusses is the possibility to say, yes, you can have a pet, but you need to take out pet insurance. Now, before we can do that, of course, we've got to change the Tenant Fees Act, because the Tenant Fees Act doesn't allow you to make any other charges on other the rent, on the utilities. But Michael Gove appreciates that, or appreciated when he's in office, that one of the reasons we say no to pets, more or less a blanket across the industry, is we can't do what we did before 2019 and say, okay, you want a pet? We'll increase the deposit to cover the landlord's increased risk. We can't do that. So we are probably going to see a move to make it more acceptable in the eyes of government to have pets the reasons for refusing a pet are going to have to be fairly good going forward but we are likely to be able to say to a tenant you can only have a pet if you take an extra insurance so again watch this space but at the moment i would say no pets what i know a lot of um property members have said in the past is we'll take a pet but we're going to increase the rent now, there's a bit of a debate as to whether that is appropriate. Um, most of you probably know James Monroe, who looks after the enforcement side of things for, uh, for, for the industry. He actually said at one meeting that, as far as he was concerned, that was unfair, you can't do that. Um, most of the industry, on the other side of the fence, the people who actually let out properties, most landlords and agents, they say, no, you know, if you want a pair, we can't charge insurance premiums, we can't charge extra deposit, so we're going to put the rent up. Um, and that is what most people are doing across the country at the moment but you know watch this space okay um and
0: and we we've, we've got a question that that's kind of around the kind of the AST if if, if we're going into periodic are we yeah. are we getting rid of the AST is that is that no more no,
1: no 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 we'll still have it'll still be called the short short-term tenancy and the way government talking at the moment is that from the date the legislation comes into effect you will have a period of grace in which you can still create fixed-term tenancies. At the end of that period of grace, which could be six months, it could be 12 months, at the end of that period of grace, then you will have to create going forward periodic tenancies only. You won't be able to create a fixed term. And then after another period of grace, what were fixed-term tenancies will automatically convert into periodic tenancies. So there will be a phased increase. But they'll still be called assured short-term tenancies. All the other rules and regulations we love will still apply. We'll still do the gas safety, you know, um, let's do the um, electricity checks. All that stuff will still apply. We'll just have to change the term definition from fixed term to periodic. Yeah. So we're not. So we we're, we're not we're not converting things to holiday lets or no, no, no. Uh, anything I mean, like I that. Mean, in in Wales, they're getting rid of the terminology AST. That's going out the window probably on the first of December. Uh, you know, they're going to have sort of contracts with different names. But no, in England, it'll still be an AST. So the, the language isn't changing. The rules aren't changing. It'll just be the term will be slightly different. Fantastic. Um,
0: great. Well, let's, I think let's move on to our, our next topic. Um, so new
1: carbon monoxide and smoke and alarm regu- regulations. So what, what's going on here, Robert? OK, well, from the 1st of October, we have new regulations. The old ones were published way back in 2015. So we're moving on slightly. The important thing for people to know is that last month, guidance notes were published by the government as to how the new rules should be interpreted in basic terms what we're now saying moving forward is that landlords in future will be responsible for those alarms Now it doesn't mean the batteries the batteries we can still pass off the liability to change batteries to the tenant put that in the ast but if there's something faulty with the alarm it's down to the landlord to get it repaired or to be honest it's going to be cheap just to replace it so if a tenant puts in new batteries and the alarm still isn't working properly then as soon as you are told that there is a problem with that alarm, you, as the agent or the landlord, you've got to go and fix it, replace it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a big change. Um, also, for the first time, all these regulations on smoke alarms will have to apply to the social sector. I mean, I, I can't quite believe it, but, you know, we've had to do this in the private rented sector, but they haven't had to do it in the, um, in, the in the public sector at all. I mean, one and not the other, I, I really don't know. So... Um, Carbon monoxide. You're going to have to have a carbon monoxide uh, alarm in every room where there's any sort of burning going on. Now, if you go back for sort of, you know a few years, at the moment the regulations say you need a carbon monoxide detector only where you are burning solid fuel. So you think about that logically. If you have a boiler which is burning wood chips, you need a carbon monoxide detector in that room where the boiler is. If you have got, like most of us, a gas or an oil-fired boiler, weirdly you don't need a carbon monoxide detector in that room at the moment. i mean again, I'm sure somebody from my tool will tell me why that is the case, but logically you're still burning something. Every burning, um, every combustion action produces carbon dioxide. So going forward, yes, you'll have to have a carbon oxide detector everywhere. You've got anything which is burning, boiler burning gas, boiler burning oil. The exception is going to be gas cookers. So if you've got a, a kitchen with only a gas cooker, nothing else, you don't need a carbon monoxide detector. If you've got a kitchen with a gas cooker and a boiler burning gas or oil, yes, you will need a carbon monoxide detector in that room. So that again is, is, is a bit of a change. Um, the regulation guide, well, the guidelines that have come out last month talk about following a manufacturer's um, advice when it comes to positioning alarms. It talks about testing, and of course, you know, you have to test at the beginning of a tenancy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and ideally, keep a record to say you have actually tested it. it. The guidelines deal with batteries. Yes, tenants do the batteries, but if the alarm still doesn't work, you've got to sort it out. So the guidelines run to about four or five pages. Um, you know, it's it, it's probably quite a good idea to download them from the government website, have a quick read. But, you know, these are coming in on the on the 1st of uh, October. Now, interestingly, the government says we do not have to hardwire any of these alarms into the system. We need to have what they're calling sealed batteries, not batteries that can leak, but sealed batteries. And contrast that with Wales. Wales, their regulations come in on the 1st of December. It's very similar to what we have in England. But if you're across the other side of the River Severn, on the 1st of December, your alarms are going to have to be hardwired in. So that's a bit of a change between, you know, England and Wales, depending on which side of the river so you're, you're renting properties. So that's what's coming in 1st of October for England. And so
0: and so if it, let's say let's say the tenancy renews, who, whose responsibility is it to test the alarm at the, at the renewal if it's not a new tenancy? Well, yeah, actually, you say that,
1: um, Tom, the regulations make it quite clear. You test the alarm not on a renewal, but on day one of a new tenancy. And the way the government have defined it in the guidance is a new tenancy is a brand new tenancy. It's not a renewal. So ironically, if you've got someone who moves into a property tomorrow morning, yes, you test that alarm tomorrow morning. If they then renew the tenancy every 12 months for the next 25 years, you never have to test it technically at the renewal stage. What, of course, I would say to everybody is, you know, when you do your inspections, when you do your inventories, test, 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 keep on testing them. The other thing a lot of people don't, perhaps appreciate, is that most alarms are like a pack of butter. They have a use-by date on there. And that's because in every smoke alarm, there is a little isotope which gradually deteriorates electrical components. And after about 10 years, you will find that alarm is no longer serviceable. It might beep when you press the button. You know, the alarm might flash from time to time, but it's no longer serviceable. And, of course, as far as the regulations are concerned, if the alarm is not serviceable, there is no alarm. So, you know, if, if agents haven't done it, they're going to make sure that on their inventories, they actually note the use by date for those alarms. Now, why I'm raising this, of course, if you think about it, alarms were really there 10, 15 years ago. There are going to be a lot of alarms out there which are no longer serviceable. And agents and analysts just may not realize it. So check the use by date, you know, alarms cost diddly squad, and get them replaced. Um, That's what you've got to do. It's
0: definitely something that that we should be pushing kind of inventory companies to be offering as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we've got a few questions here about gas hobs. Um, so let's say I've got a cooker um, and I've got a gas hob that maybe maybe is beside the cooker. Um, is that two separate things? Do I need a carbon monoxide
1: um, detector for that? No. Gas cookers are defined as anything where gas is used to heat food. So you've got a gas oven. That's defined as a cooker. You've got a separate hob. That's defined as a cooker. And of course, you think about it. The reason behind all this is that every year, you have to get your gas safety check. And one of the things that will be checked will be the cooker, the hob, whatever it may be if it's burning gas. So that's one of the reasons why we're not too concerned or the government said we don't need a carbon monoxide detector in a kitchen if all you've got in that kitchen is a gas cooker. I mean, you can argue against it, Um, I think when they when they looked at the feedback from the industry, it was a question of the cost benefit analysis, knowing that we've got to do a gas safety check in every way. Do we also need the the carbon monoxide? And the government said, no, you don't. Um, You know, you can argue around that until the cows come home. But no, if it's gas cooker, whether it's an oven or a hob, that's defined as a cooker for these regulations. You don't need a separate carbon monoxide detector. Because remember, if you've got a boiler in the same room, yeah, you need one, but for different reasons. Yeah, definitely. And and do we have a grace period with this um, this, this piece of the legislation? Yeah. yeah, grace period ends on the 1st of October. Um, and what the government have said is, no, these regulations are actually published back in January. Now, I know we only got the guidance notes last month, but no, the government absolutely in all the guidance notes. There is no, effectively, there's no period of grace. We've known about this for the best part of seven months. No, from the 1st of October, these regulations will be enforced. Now, interestingly, on the question of enforcement, if there is no proper alarm system in a property, what a local authority will do is serve you with a remedial notice saying, oi, get one fitted. Now, that to me does not seem much um, of a sanction for not doing it. If then, of course, you don't fit it, despite getting a notice from the council, then it's a £5,000 fine. But initially, all you're going to get is a remedial notice saying, get one fitted. My worry For landlords, it's not the council. My worry is, number one, the safety of your tenant. You do not want to be on the front page of your local rag if you're an agent responsible for a property that burned down. If the fire brigade say, well, there are no smoke alarms in that property. So that's number one. But number two, more importantly, if you go through the small print of most buildings insurance policies, there will be a clause saying you must have smoke alarms fitted. So, you know, if your building goes up in flames and it turns out you didn't have a smoke alarm, well, forget killing the tenants, which is bad enough. Um, Your landlord might have some embarrassing questions to answer to his loss adjuster when the insurer is saying we're not paying out. So, you know, the local authority sanction to me is, is, is a minor consideration. It's the safety of your tenant and it's the financial safety of any insurance claim if you don't have a properly working alarm so you know there shouldn't be any properties now where we don't have these interestingly enough there are a few exemptions um I don't know why but you don't need smoke alarms in care homes you don't need smoke alarms in student halls of residence because obviously students are a, a lesser form of human life I guess but for the rest of us yes please can we have new carbon monoxide detectors and smoke alarms like yesterday certainly by the 1st of October if you haven't got them already so apart from those exclusions, it's a common sense bit of legislation. Absolutely. I mean, there are to be honest, there are Tom, there are other loads of exclusions. But no, it, it's common sense legislation. I mean, the test that I would always say is would you or I want to rent a property or live somewhere where we didn't have smoke alarms? And they will say, yes, of course we wouldn't. Mm. So, you know, we we can't we can't give ourselves one standard and expect our tenants to have a lesser standard. Just that just that just yeah. is, is illogical. So no, we should have that. I mean, let's face it. I mean, on the modern alarm, you know, even once on batteries cost about twelve pound fifty from B and Q. I mean, who's going to jeopardize you know the safety of a tenant for twelve pound fifty? You're not. So get it done. Yeah, definitely. And um, and and one of the questions on this is is
0: do we do we need to um if there's an existing tenancy before the first of October, do I need to go in and and, and test the alarm or um is well, that tenancy Yeah, can- I mean
1: this this is the logicality. You test the alarm on day one of a brand new tenancy. You never have to test it any other time. But to be honest, if you're doing a periodic inspection, if I was your landlord, I would want to know if my alarm wasn't working because, again, that could have implications for insurance, could be implications for tenant safety. So I think if you're doing a regular inspection or you're doing an end of term or midterm inspection or you're getting your image clerk to do it, yeah, go and test it. Press that button. But, again, check the use by date because, you know, you might press the button, it might sound absolutely fine, but if it's beyond the use by date, that that alarm technically is not functioning.
0: Okay. And there's, there's one here, which I think is, um, is, is quite relevant because it's always these tiny little um, mm. nuances that uh, trip people up. Is, is day one day one? Um, does it have to be absolutely day one? Or let's say the inventory is done, you know, 24 hours before the start date. Um, is that good enough?
1: Well, the legislation says at the start of the tenancy. Now, you know, English is a great language. What does the start of the tenancy mean? I think it probably means on day one. So if your tenancy starts on a Monday morning, do you have to actually do it at one minute past midnight? I think a degree of common sense comes in here. I mean, if you're doing it the day before... To be honest, I wouldn't worry too much. I wouldn't want to do it a week or two weeks before because you know, a week in, in, in safety is a long, long time. You do it the day before, I think be fairly relaxed. But no, it says at the start of the tenancy. Now, if you do it three or four days later and it's absolutely fine, no problem. My question to every agent is what happens if you don't do it on day one and a fire on day two before you were going to do it on day three? The evidence that it was working has gone up in smoke. So you need to do it really at the start, whatever that, that term means. Oh, one other thing while I think about it, um, if you look at the guidance, they talk about alarms being suitable for the tenants you have in a property. So what that really means is if you have tenants with a disability, they have got to somehow be given the tools to change that battery if the battery goes or the landlord's got to accept responsibility so i mean take us in a situation where you have you know elderly people and you have very very high ceilings there is no way you'd expect some in their 60s or 70s to climb a stepladder so in that situation you may have to say to your tenants we will be responsible for the batteries or give them a ladder or whatever and the other one which i think the governor's mentioned in his guidance notes is um deaf people if you have deaf people in in a property how do they know the alarms going off so there you may have to get one of those slightly more expensive alarms with a strobe light so you know when it goes or the battery fails you know it's, it's a light a very bright light flashing as opposed to a, a you know um, a verbal or oral um, alarm so again it's, a it's it's all common sense um you know what you want to do is put client safety or tenant safety first think about insurance and think about you know how this is going to pan out over the next few months okay thank you um so if we just move on to
0: the final one, I think I think we're, we're at time, so I just want to kind of go for one more question. I think there's there's a the white paper is a is a big topic, and I think it's it, it really is probably going to define how how the industry changes in in the future. What, what do you think? Do you think the government is taking a shot at landlords, um,
1: Robert? I think there's been a few questions in the in, in the chat that, that well, everyone well, saying this is quite unfair. Tom, I mean, several people watching this webinar will know I'm a complete cynic when it comes to politics. I always take the view that there are more votes out there from tenants than there are from landlords, you know, and, you know, we've got this thing that landlords are a very easy target because properties don't move. You know, when you look at everything that been thrown at landlords over the last 10 years all the regulations for the paperwork um how to rent guides gas safety electrical if you look at the changes in the tax system so we can't even claim writing off allowances now for uh, you know for wear and tear on, on on the contents yeah it's it's have another dig at landlords but i think this one this one could be a game changer because if the message which the government sends out to landlords is look you know, we are going to go wholesale onto the side of tenants, I can see a potential exodus in the market. And that's when the government shoots itself in the foot because we don't have enough accommodation in this country and we've got a generation of people growing up who are used to mobility. I mean, when I, when I joined Dutton Gregory 30 years ago, it was my job for life. You know, I was going to be here. I was going to move very far. But now, coming through in all the professions, all sorts of industries, we have got the millennials who change jobs every couple of years. Now, with that comes the need for mobility. And with that comes the private rented sector, which we've had now an incredibly strong 20 years. And I hope we still have a strong 20 years ahead. But the message to government is, you know, don't shoot the goose that lays the golden egg. And, you know, we talk about the representations in the industry. Property Mark has done his bit. You know, Ben Beadle of the National Association, he's done his bit. Other people are putting in their representations and hopefully it will get through. But as I say, until we actually see a bill to see how this blue sky thinking translates into draft legislation, um, you know, the jury's out fantastic
0: um well i think on on that um Um, we will close up, but thank you very much for your, um, your questions, everyone. Thank you very much for your, um, your advice and your, 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 your thoughts, Robert. Um, I hope, I hope it's been interesting for everyone. Um, we will be sending out your CPD, um, certificate, um, later on. Um, and this webinar is of course recorded. So if you do want to share it with any of your team, uh, then, then, um, the recording will probably come in an email after afterwards, um, or will be available, um, on, um, the newsagent, um, site at goodlord.co, um, So thank you very much. And I hope everyone has a fantastic day.